0: My name's Ian Britton, Premier's Northern Correspondent, and welcome to Usher College, Durham. Sitting in the interviewer chair this evening is Professor Paul Murray, Dean and Director of the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University. His guest is the Right Honourable the Lord Hattersley. The hall at Usher College is already full, and the audience is looking forward to a good evening. Good evening, everyone. Our guest this evening will undoubtedly be best known to you as one of the most prominent uh, Labour parliamentarians in the latter part of the 20th, 20th century. For 33 years, MP of Birmingham um, Sparkbrook, from 1983 to 1982, deputy leader of the Labour Party, made a life peer on the 24th of November 1997 as Baron Hattersley of Sparkbrook. Well, This evening, um, we have the pleasure of the company of the other Roy Hattersley, Roy as he prefers to be called, um, the prolific author of three novels and numerous weighty biographies, including studies of Lloyd George, John Wesley, and William Booth. Since 2003, in recognition of these achievements, uh, Roy has been an elected member of the Royal Society of Literature. And most particularly this evening, we gather to discuss this remarkable recent study, the Catholics, the Church and its people in Britain and Ireland, from the Reformation to the present day. Roy, we're delighted to welcome you amongst us.
1: Before you ask me questions, I just wanted to make a little statement, if I may. Um, You don't come here for health warnings, but it is a health warning. Uh, I should have given a proper lecture here tonight, standing behind a desk and reading two or three thousand words. But since I was invited, I've been discovered to be suffering from Parkinson's disease. And apart from being difficult to get up steps, I can't judge the speed at which I speak. Uh, If I begin to read something, suddenly it runs away with me. So I lectured out. Uh, If I begin to speak very quickly this evening, it's not because I got fed up and want to go home, it's that uh, the disease has taken over. But we'll accommodate it and counteract it. So you, as long as you're prepared for that, I'm prepared for anything. And thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you so much, Roy, for the graciously accepting the invitation, and particularly under the circumstances. It's, uh, it's courageous and generous of you.
1: No, it's, it's partly... I wanted to come here. Um, I want to talk about the book. I like talking about the book. Uh, and it's also therapy. The only way to get over this disease is by ignoring it or facing it and fighting it. Uh, I could sit at home and watch the television in the afternoon, but I'd much rather be here. So thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. I'm thinking that perhaps if
0: we start with um, exploring a little, as I alluded to a moment ago, the, um, the other Roy Hattersley, the author, and uh, having read recently The Catholics, your, your love of language is transparent in that. There's a, there's a wit, a color. Um, a punchiness to the sentences. So that makes me think that you've been a long-term reader and writer before. This this is not a a, a recent um, embark,
1: yeah. There's a a weakness in my writing, in my philosophy of writing, that I I believe the language should be important, Uh, more important than the fact that it conveys. Um, Gore Vidal says that uh, had there been nine prophets, he couldn't have written about them because he will never use the word nine. And there's some words that stick in the throat, stick in the gullet. And there's some sentences that do the same. And I was always wanted to write sentences which were elegant in their own right, which sometimes means you gloss over their facts, or don't get the facts as quite as elegant as they should be presented, but I hope it makes it readable. And after all, why you write is for people to read. And that is the object of the exercise.
0: So how long have you been writing for publication? Were you doing this when you were a parliamentarian, or is it since retirement from that?
1: My first published work was in the Holly Leaf the magazine of the Sheffield City Grammar School, which was a poem in praise of socialism, but in praise of Attlee's government. They might have done much better, but they could have done much worse. And when I had a, bu- a book of my essays, 40 years of essays printed, a collection, I thought how smashing it would be if I started off with what I wrote when I was 12 in the City Grammar School magazine. So I looked it up, and it was so bloody awful, I wouldn't call <laughs> it. Uh, but since then, there's been a number of hiatus, but the first book, was in 1971 Seven, and that was a biography of Lord Nelson. Uh, I'd been Minister of Defence through some difficult times. Uh, I signed this edict to put sh- troops on the streets of Belfast. Uh, I did a number of rather dangerous and difficult things in the Minister of Defence. And when Lord George Weidenfeld said, we want to book on a great commander I chose Nelson because he'd looked down on me through all these difficult days in my room in the Ministry of Jones. And he was bought outright for £1,000, which was a lot of money in those days. I'd have paid £1,000 to publish it. Uh, and it's still in print, but I do not get a penny back because I sold it out to him. But that was the first one. That was the first one.
0: So it's not so much the second career, it's, it's always been the alternative, always, the other it, career, yes. woven throughout. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's never any chance of it being my first career. I am first and foremost a politician. If I were 29 again, I would want to represent a inner-city seat with a mixed-race community, probably in the Midlands.
0: For 33 years?
1: Yeah, if, if I were 29, I'd want to, it's no good if you're 85, but if you're 29, it's what I would want to do. Great. So, um, why
0: biographies? That, that seems to be a, a, a consistent point for you in returning to um, biography.
1: Well, the people I admire, are people I've taken interest in, I'm a great admirer of Lloyd George. It was the most recent biography, I also two religious biographies. I mean, John Wesley and uh, uh, Booth, the founder of the Southern Army. Wesley interested me because of his impertinence. I mean, this young man, as he was then, uh, the world is my parish, the idea of taking on the establishments of the English church, uh, the impertinence of it attracted me. It was a very unattractive figure. But also, I have to confess that religion attracts me. I am, dare I say to these premises, a devout atheist. Um, I have no doubts. I'm not an agnostic. I have no doubts at all that there's nowhere outside. uh, I won't go into specific specific doubts, but I have no doubt at all. But despite that, religion fascinates me. And uh, that's why I was terribly tempted and eventually fell to write about two great religious figures.
0: That's fascinating you put it like that, um, Roy, because I often say that as a believer, I find the, um, the certainty of the atheist enviable, but I think we're going to come back to some of that. Um, I, I, I find the whole world of belief opens up more questions than it gives me answers, but um, before we come to that... Just tell me something about the the research and writing process. I mean, do do you you draw upon research assistants? And what's the process you go through for all of this?
1: No, I've never employed a research assistant for any meaningful degree. When I wrote the Wesley biography, no, when I wrote the Booth biography, I had to look at the Booth letters. Booth, before he founded the Salvation Army, was a Methodist minister, a traveling Methodist minister. And he had a very positive wife, a wife who used to send him instructions every day about wearing clean shirts and washing his feet and shaving, as well as religious matters. Uh, so there's immense bo- uh, Booth correspondence in the London Library. And I thought I'd employ someone to go through that for me. And I had a very uh, talented young girl who went through it, but I realized that while she could look what I look up what I asked her to look up, she didn't me- notice things that I would notice. She didn't know what she was looking for. So I felt confidence required me to do it myself. So all the research into the Catholics, for instance, um, none up here, though I probably should have done, but the archives of the, of the Westminster diocese, the archives of the Birmingham diocese, long days spent in the English College in Rome, that was all done by me, sitting there and taking notes, done by me. And that's the only way I can feel confident I've got the right material.
0: Yeah, but that, that then also exposes you incredibly and you know, as much as you're, um, you're a, a, a non-academic, engaging with this material, and wanting to disseminate it and popularise it, taking on a mass of material. It takes um, some courage to do that.
1: Yeah, but let me, let's be frank about it. I am what's called a popular historian. Um, my wife was an academic historian. And A neighbour of ours said to me, what's the difference between popular historians and academic historians? And she said, oh, I know. Academic historians don't get their work read. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I write to sell not for commercial reasons, but because I want people to read what I've written. Yeah. So popular history has a certain, I won't say superficiality, but it has a quality which is different from academic history, uh, which is rather more intense and rather more precise. Uh-huh.
0: But as one of my academic historian colleagues put it, we owe, our, we owe our existence to the popularizers because that means it's justifiable to have people who need to do the deep burrowing if there's a, if there's a general public interest in the issues at large.
1: Yes. Yeah. And of course, popular history, uh, to a great degree, depends on secondary sources, and lot of secondary sources in the book. Yeah. Though I'm proud to say there's a great deal of original material from Rome, from Birmingham, and from London, but Absolutely. as well as there was a great deal of original material, there's a great deal of secondary material too.
0: So I want to move us back to a, um, a few areas of uh, probing around the area of religion, um, uh, Royan, that you've, that you've alluded to there. So you self-confessed atheist, uh, but you—I don't think "self-confessed" is quite the right word, if I may say so. <laughs> <laughs> but drawn to the study of religious figures, Booth, um, Wesley, uh, now the the Catholics. So, what makes you into this God-obsessed atheist? I mean, what, what what's what's behind what's behind the fascination?
1: I don't know. Um, it's just—it's not genetic, uh, as is clear in the book, the preface. My father was a Catholic priest who left the church to marry my mother uh, or to run away with my mother. He didn't marry her because she was already married until I was 22 when they married. But that had nothing to do with it because I didn't know my father was a priest. Uh, I discovered my father had been a priest the day after his funeral. My mother and I went back to the house. She said, will you go through the letters of condolence? And one of them said, as you will know, your father and I were in the English College in Rome together. We were both parish priests in the diocese of which I became bishop. That was from Bishop Don of Birmingham, B- of Nottingham. And until then, I had no idea my father was a Catholic priest. Showed so mm-hmm. how dense I was. I mean, he was a junior local government officer who could read Latin at sight. <laughs> he knew strange esoteric facts like that Bonnie Prince Charlie's brother was Archbishop of Frascati. It never struck me why does he know these things? Why can he read Latin? But I didn't know until, well, a month after he was dead. So, it's not genetic, it's just, I can't account for it. It may even be a miracle, but it's not working out quite that way. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: one of the things you um, return to a number of times in the book, and that um, you've already uh, alluded to by saying something about the strength of your conviction and lack of doubt over atheism, you, you, you say something about certainty a number of times and a certain. A certain admiration for an assumption you have about a, a model of certainty in,
1: in Catholicism. Perhaps, perhaps you could say a little more about that. Well, it's not so much admiration as envy. Um, the thesis of the book, if there is a thesis, is that the Catholic Church has survived through a thousand years, well, 500 years here, 500 years, at the end of this month, of persecution, partly out of faith partly because of the certainty of the religion. Not the certainty of individuals, individuals have doubts, but the religion has, is firm in its convictions, in what is right and what is wrong. And it's easier to rely on something and side with something if they don't haver about it, if they say, this is it, this is it. And Catholicism appeals to me because of that certainty of the faith. As I say, not necessarily the certainty of individuals, but of the faith. Um, and one of the things that seems to me to have sustained the Catholic Church over the last 500 years is the fact they don't compromise this is right this is wrong and one of the things that's going to face it now in the next 50 years is whether it starts to compromise if it can survive compromise or whether it can survive without compromise
0: yeah i'm, I'm glad you um, i'm glad you qualified the um, institutional certainty and and personal certainty because i i wasn't recognizing necessarily some of that that uh, the um, in all institutions are frail, and um, Catholics know the Church can be frail. Ideas fall short of that which they um, <laughs> seek to articulate. But um, the what Newman called certainty was more certitude, more in the realm of relationship and uh, um, a personal uh, sense of um, rootedness, a sense of. Uh, presence and loving living presence so i was wondering whether i mean someone like a campion is is campion more an example of that or
1: well campion is a classic hero i mean hero and martyr um and the, the great figure that's represented as all that's best in the catholic church during its most difficult period but a more clear example of that if i may give it is a current example Um, I was in Rome two years ago doing the, on the family, on the family, as your audience will know, when the Catholic Church talks about sex, it always calls it family, (laughs) Uh, and that's what they were talking about, and I was talking to the bishop who was with the cardinal there, and he was saying that many priests in his diocese are confronted day after day by young married women who say, I've got three children, I'm not very well, my husband's out of work, I don't want any more, what can I do about contraception? And he said, my priests tell them they can't do it, it's not right. And that's what I mean about the certainty. Uh, the women themselves may haver about it, they may say, well, perhaps I should have to. But the church will not say, well, you're unwell, you're poor, you've got three children already, you're finding it difficult to manage, we can compromise on the principle for you. They say, no, it is wrong. And that is the certainty which I think is very easy to rely on, to lean on, to depend on. Well, let's let's move to looking at this
0: this book particularly. You've already alluded to some, some of the personal uh, dimension that gave you interest in, in this story. It's not just a great adventure story for you. Um, in what sense, to what degree is it a tribute to your parents? To what degree is it a trying to understand their story? To what degree is it... Um, uh, Mike, the Who Do You Think You Are programme? To what degree are you trying to understand your your own backstory no, through this it, book?
1: It's not, it's not. nothing to do with that at all. Uh, as I say, I didn't know my father was a priest until he was dead. Uh, I was very close to him. Um, I, I spent many hours with him in churches looking at monuments and tablets and uh, gravestones, watching him translate the Latin in wonder. Uh, but it never struck me that he was religious in that way. Indeed, there was a time when we went to the Church of England, round the corner. Uh, we were emergent working class, moving into most semi-detached, own occupied houses, which showed you were on your way up. And one of the things that proved that you were respectable was sending your son to church, and so they went to go with me. So there was no pressure to feel particularly religious in any particular way. They were Church of England, so they weren't really religious. So there's none of that. I wrote the book for two reasons, partly because it is a great adventure story, and secondly because I found out about what happened to Catholics from the previous book. I wrote the history of the Devonshire family, the Dukes of Devonshire, the Cavendishers. And the Cavendishes started off with Sir William Cavendish working for Henry VIII, clothing monasteries. And they ceased to be important in... 1880, when the 8th Duke of Devonshire was obsessed with not giving home rule to Ireland because it was a Catholic nation. And in between, every Devonshire was wildly and madly and manically anti-Catholic. And having written about an anti-Catholic family, and heard the then Duchess, the Duchess Justice, Debo, describe herself as, we are the great Protestant family of England. It struck me, how have these people survived with families as powerful as the Devonshires? giving them a hard time for 500 years have they survived. And that combined with the adventure story was where I wrote it. That's fascinating.
0: So um, what, were the, uh, what were the questions that you took into the book and have you um, satisfied yourself in terms of the answers you found to them?
1: Now, the, the, the puzzles that remain with me in the book are two or threefold. One is the Catholic Church's bad choice of heroes. I mean, in the... 16th century, to choose Moore rather than Fisher, as a great hero seemed to me to be absurd. John Fisher was a great man by any standards, and Moore wasn't a great man until he was imprisoned. I mean, Moore was the most overestimated martyr in the Catholic Church's hierarchy. John Fisher was a great man, and he very much underrated. We get to the 19th century, and I think the same applies. John Henry Newman uh, is not half the man that Manning was. I mean, Manning was a great Victorian who brought the Catholic Church into life, with a real state. And so I was surprised by that. What else was I surprised by? Well, I was surprised by the degree of devotion among honorable people. I, I've said it's an adventure story. And of course, there are the great figures of adventure, like Moore himself. But the real heroes of the book are the little people, the small people who give up their lives, sacrifice their lives to remain faithful. I'll give you an example. A man called John Lambert was picked out uh, to be made an example of by Henry VIII when Henry VIII was dying. And Henry VIII wanted to demonstrate he still believed in the Catholic liturgy. And Henry VIII personally tried John, John Lambert because he refused to believe the real presence during the Eucharist. And Henry VIII said, Do you believe or not in yeah. transubstantiation? And John Lambert said, No, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it. He would warn what would happen to him unless he he'd recounted. And he wouldn't recount. He was burnt not on a fire but on a spit like a hock hawk. ox turned round over the fire, and he knew that was going to happen to him. But he did it rather than recount. I mean, those are the real heroes of the book, and it's their story that I wanted to write.
0: And and what's the challenge of getting in touch with those the, the little people as it were? Because I mean, they're not documented in the in anything like the same way that. that, that
1: well, the, well, the, the few little people happen. I didn't get in touch with, but the very many I did through the papers in London and in Rome. And in Birmingham, um, there were very often secondary sources, but 18th-century secondary sources. And Lambert is in a paper in the archives in Westminster. Uh, the paper written for a sermon in I think 1750, during the, before Birmingham, emancipation. And did that communicate something of the devotional life, and piety, Absolutely. and shape? Absolutely.
0: Um, on the more question, I mean, it's interesting you allude to that. Um, Gravitation towards Manning rather than Newman, <clears throat> towards Fisher, the underrated rather than Moore. Um, do you think that the rhetorical structure that you use there perhaps uh, sets more up for the fall? I mean, you you, uh, you probably lean heavily onto um, the more negative readings of him. From um,
1: uh, well, I lean heavily on what he did um, and what he said, and he is an exception in historical figures. One particular, writing history, the first lesson you learn is not to judge people in 1550 by the standards of 2019, but Moore himself was a paragon of more modern values. He wrote... Utopia, which was a society in which had free speech, there's no capital punishment, there's no corporal punishment. We all love each other, and he didn't live according to his own standards. He was the only historical example I can imagine, remember, who set out standards for himself which he didn't fulfil. But then there are awful things he did. I mean, little things as well as big things. Uh, the one that struck me because it's so distasteful it's small. When Wolsey was deposed, uh, Henry was rather indulgent toward Wolsey instead of beheading him, as was the habit. He uh, sent him off to York, which was a pleasure in itself, um, with a lot of money and horses and luggage of one sort or another. But the little group in Parliament moved a resolution saying that Woolsey should be given a more severe punishment. And they said, well, what is it Woolsey's done? And more, as Lord Chancellor announces, well, he used to breathe on the king so that the king would ca- catch his syphilis. Now this is such a distasteful thing to do, such an unpleasant thing to do. I find it very difficult to imagine anybody who ever did that was sanctified. And it's only a small example. There are many other examples too. There's famous, I can't remember the actual words, but there's famous imprecation about heretics. The civic authority to prosecute them, the church authority to burn them, and the rest of us to enjoy them burning in hell forever. I mean, that is not Christ as a forgiving king. And Wolsey was like that until he was imprisoned. Uh, he's, been,
0: he's suffered ferocious um, revisionist critique by people such as Jasper Ridley and uh, of course more popularly, Hilary Mantel, and it's, uh, it's in a line with that kind of portrayal of him.
1: Yeah, I don't know whether... I mean, I, I'm very happy to think of myself alongside Hilary Mantel, but uh, I think it's just coincidental. We both looked on the facts. I don't know what it was like, how more was seen before the publication of A Man For All Seasons. But he depended very much on what the man for all seasons said and did about him. And Moore did another thing, which is a good political trick. He chose good biographers. Harpsfield, Roper were ad- adherents of Moore, who wrote favorable biographers. And much of it was invented. The things he was to have said on the scaffold, we're not sure he said at all. Many things he said in prison, oh, we rely on his own word for it. It's those last six months. Which elevate him in, in, in the Catholic Church, and I think those last six months are probably overestimated. And they don't count against the rest of his life. Yeah. Someone, you have a considerably less,
0: um, more well, considerably more positive and less ambiguous take on is Edward Edmund Campion. Um, perhaps you could tell us more about what uh, what you find in
1: Campion. Well, Campion is a classic hero. Uh, there's a not very good biography of him written by Evelyn Waugh, but. Uh, all the things that Evelyn Waugh says are true. He came back to England from Douai uh, at a time when the church, church, Catholic Church was not sure whether he was trying to find converts in England, reconverts, or whether he was trying to sustain existing Catholics. It was part of that great argument do we try and make new converts, do we try and hold on to the old? And he persisted in speaking the word under every adverse circumstance and was eventually found out by a Priest seeker uh, executed in the most horrible circumstances and was a genuine hero, and there were lots of them about. But it raises a very interesting co- subject about today: uh, the argument about whether they should hang on to the Catholics who existed or try and reconvert those who have been proselytized during the Reformation still affects the Church today. I mean, the Church, the Catholic Church, is very timid about proselytization. For his seventieth birthday, Cardinal Hume had an interview with the Tablet which ended with a sort of joke. He said, very well, I go to Mass now, and remember the last line is, the prayers for conversion of England to Catholicism, which is published. There was an absolute outcry. Cardinal Hume found it necessary to write to the Archbishop of Canterbury, saying, I'm not really trying to convert your people at all. And there's still that feeling among the Catholic Church that it wants to hang on to its own rather than go out and proselytise. And uh, the Archbishop of Westminster did your job with me at Oxford. And I said, why don't you go knock on people's doors? And he said, well, uh, we can't explain our faith in two minutes. But you don't try to explain it at all to new converts. You just try to hang on to what you've got, which seems to me to be a very interesting phenomenon, very interesting indeed. And that that
0: played out historically in the tension between the Jesuits and the, the seculars, yeah? And I think that people will find it interesting for you to explore that a little. While. Well
1: well, the, the real thing was this. Astonishment, I found that how, uh, Unpopular Jesuits are. I, I mean, are, I, I don't mean were, but I are. Mean, being a whole hogging sort of person, I rather admire the Jesuits for their thoroughness, for their, in a sense, their extremism. Uh, a very senior priest in Rome, I said to him, why don't you like the Jesuits? They seemed to me to be like the commandos of the church, more like stormtroopers, he said. And that feeling was constantly repeated. Well, the Jesuits, by the time we're talking about, wanted to try and reconvert England to Catholicism. Uh, others, seminarian priests, thought it it's better hang on to what we've got. And My instinct as a politician is to go and make new converts rather than hang on to what we've got. Jumping ahead, perhaps um, try and help us
0: understand something of the complexities of the Restoration period. Um, Charles II with the Catholic wife, indeed, as you saw earlier this evening, the, 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 the dowry arrangement of the... Um, the gift of Bombay to, to England, at the starts effectively the British Empire here, a document kept ushore. How is it under that period that we end up with the, the popish plot and sporadic persecutions, well, executions? by
1: the restoration, the, the country was basically Protestant, but the court wasn't. I mean, Charles II was a Catholic, and he was, he was converted formally to Catholicism on his deathbed but he'd been supported by Catholicism throughout his entire life. Um, when he escaped from the Roundheads, you know, hidden in a tree, the famous image, he was accompanied by a priest, who remained his priest throughout his life, and probably performed the last rites on him when he died. And, but Charles II was a Catholic for two reasons. One was conviction, the other was Catholic alliances with Spain and France. Um, Charles II's brother, James II, is an open Catholic. I mean, Proposals of acts of parliament which exclude him from punish punishment for being an open Catholic. So, a very confusing situation. By the Restoration, most of England was Protestant, or thought it was, but the monarchy was still Catholic, which ended up with the inevitable re- Glorious Revolution, which we all learned at school was neither glorious nor revolution, but it did, in fact, end the idea of a Catholic hierarchy.
0: It's, um, it's a pretty male-heavy book, uh, Roy. The, the, the women don't get an awful lot of a look-in. Um, two of the great heroes up here well, in Norman. Well, with one notable
1: exception. One notable get, exception the, the with one notable exception, the bloody Queen Mary. Well, yeah, yes. Women don't get a great look-in the Catholic Church, do they? But what about Mary, <laughs> what about Mary Ward and, um, and Margaret Clitheroe? Yeah, well, well uh, that, that's ignorance and omission, I have to confess. But I mean, the story of Catholicism is the story of martyrs, nearly all of whom were men. There are some women martyrs in the book, several women martyrs. So we are not, not left out altogether. And
0: you alluded a moment ago to James II and that um, really, really quite remarkable uh, period of um, over-ambitious stretching towards uh, restoration of Catholicism, which lost the crown for him. But you, you, you see that, I mean, regardless of the Jacobite, Attempts—you see that really as the end of um, any strategic attempts and hopes, aspirations for Catholic revolution, Catholic restoration, and thereafter it's about accommodation.
1: And and so agreed, both time by both sides. After the Glorious Revolution, or after Queen Anne, um, the Protestant hierarchy, the Protestant hegemony was beginning to compromise with Catholicism. They were beginning to say they're not a danger to us anymore. The Spaniards aren't going to invade. They're not going to want to usurp the throne. So they're moving gradually towards the Catholic Relief Act of 1778 and 1779. Uh, with William and Mary and their s- children, or William's children, um, there's been a real re- relaxation. Their feeling is that the, the fight is over. The battle has been won by Protestantism and the Catholics will be at best, every uh, minority.
0: And, um, but it wasn't straightforward. Uh, whilst each, each side was reconciling themselves to this new reality, there could also be outbreaks of really intense um, violence. I mean, the Gordon Riots. Tell us something about the Gordon Riots, and, and particularly I think people will be interested to hear of uh, the role of Peel and Wellington in the, the, the early part of the 19th century, given that's in people's minds, with Victoria on the television at the moment. Well, the Gordon but, Riots
1: are an extraordinary phenomenon in that there are riots against the passing of the Catholic Relief Act, or the second Catholic Relief Act. The Catholic Relief Acts are interesting in themselves and they were passed for purely military reasons. That's not a mistake, they were for purely military reasons. We were losing wars in North America, we were expecting war with France, we were short of troops. Troops could not sign on unless they took the oath of allegiance, which was a Protestant oath. So they, in order to enable more recruits to the armed forces or well, the army, the Relief Act absolved Catholics from signing the Act of Allegiance and gave them every right except the vote. It wasn't passed in Scotland because <coughs> the Scottish said there would be too much trouble. If you pass a, a Relief Act in Scotland, the anti Catholic reaction will be so violent there'll be a w- re- revolution. But a Scotsman, Lord George Gordon, came to England and self campaigned against it, which had a, a week of riots in London. Every prison in London was burned down. Buckingham Palace was besieged, 400 dead, marches against Catholicism. Um, It was the last great outbreak of real anti-Catholicism in England. After that, it was just prejudice. It wasn't anything stronger than prejudice. But that was an extraordinary convulsion, which we've really written out of history. Very wise of the Scots not to do it. And I might say, uh, the Scots have a very noble position in this book, because the Scottish Reformation was quite different from the English Reformation. The English Reformation was political. I mean, Henry started off without having any doubts about Catholic Liturgy (coughs) and Theology. He just wanted power for England. The Scottish Reformation was intellectual. Uh, Traders from the Hanseatic League brought books, setting out Protestantism, and Scotland took it on as an idea. In England, we took it on as a a power, which says something about the two nations, I think.
0: Tell us a little more about the role of, respective roles of Peel and Wellington when it comes to um, the Emancipation Act.
1: Well, the Emancipation came about in 1829 because, a tr- clever trick by O'Connell, he discovered that uh, Catholics were allowed to stand for Parliament, though they were not allowed to sit in Parliament. So he fights a by-election and gets elected, and he can't take a seat in Parliament. It suddenly becomes clear that unless something's done about it, every Irish seat is going to be contested by a Catholic who can't take his seat in Parliament. And Wellington, the unmovable, the unbendable Iron Duke, changes his mind. And uh, with a persuasive appeal, he was asked, how do you manage to change the House of Lords mind over Catholic emancipation? And he said, very easy, I told them, tension, roundabout turn, quick march. And they did, and they did. And that
0: opened the, the way, really, to the story of modern Catholicism in, in England and uh, these isles from... The,
1: uh, it opened the way for Wiseman and the reiteration of the hierarchy. Right.
0: So, but what's one of the interesting things about the book is the way in which you draw out that, um, contrary to what one might assume, it's not all simply single-handedly the, the, the ultramontanism of um, Wiseman. There is also a native stretching back <laughs> Resistance to, um, to greater uh, um, subsumption to, to Rome. So there's the Cisalpine matching the Ultramontane. Perhaps if you could draw something of that out. Well,
1: it, it almost became the time when English Catholicism was almost national Catholicism. Um, the Catholicism's centre and power and strength was in the country houses, uh, remote aristocrats who felt they were untouchable by the law, who employed priests as their virtual servants. It became a gentleman's religion. And when there was the creation of a hierarchy, the idea got abroad that perhaps the church would start running itself again rather than those people running it. So there was a great deal of opposition to the idea that the church might be restored to its normal s- situation. Uh, but of course the church prevailed, as Wiseman did. I'm very interesting. Wiseman's an interesting character, but a strange character. Um, and because he takes responsibility and takes credit for Pugin. Uh, if there's a real hero of the book, it's Pugin. The idea that you can convert a nation through architecture <laughs> seems to me to be an absolutely wonderful idea, and I like his architecture. So Wiseman gets high marks for being Pugin here, or, or, or supporting Pugin, particularly against the Earl of Shrewsbury. Uh, I must have read a thousand, no a thousand, several hundred letters um, from clerics, from bishops, or from vicars aposto- apostolic, to Wiseman saying, we've got Pugin here, he's designed a church, and he's charging us twice as much as he said originally that um, I rather admired all this, because he had an idea what his churches would look like, he'd be a to like that, come have a high water. But there's irony in that as well, isn't there? Because Wiseman is
0: the continental outsider, out- continental-born, continental-formed, uh, ultramontane, but yet it's the, it, it's, the, it's the medievalism of Pugin that attracts him aesthetically, rather than something that has a more uh, Rome-centric um, aesthetic about it. But when Rome
1: speaks, Wiseman obeys, um, there's a, I think he appears in a book, where some, some uh, service at the other seminary. Um, when, yes. And when they're wearing cassocks and surplices and soutanes of a medieval sort designed by Pugin, and Wiseman has them cut short because it says in Rome that that's what we do these days. So, so, when, when the push came, he always did what Rome told him, and quite right too. Yeah. I I love the admiration you've got for this Rome-centric certainty. It's most most refreshing from an atheist. I I said to the Archbishop of Westminster, I am the only ultra-altean atheist you'll ever meet. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. One of the other historic... um,
0: wrongs you seem to want to write is the respective reputation of Manning and Newman. I mean, at one point, a glorious phrase, page 435, you describe Newman as showing himself in um, one of his letters as petty-minded, pompous and self-loving, whereas Manning comes out of this um, shining, really, as the, as the hero of the people.
1: Well, I think he was. I mean, I am, I'm sorry to offend so many people so often this evening, but I am baffled by the admiration in which Newman is held. Uh, a very distinguished Catholic academic said to me, it's because of his writing. We were sort of writers, there were no Catholic writers in the 19th century. And Newman at least did two works, Apologia to Tessua and the University. And it's good writing. If either of you, any of you have read of those things, I mean, I, whether you think of it was good writing or not, I'd be very surprised. I mean, the <laughs> apologia seems to be unreadable, and what's worse, it's written in entirely personal terms. He admits it was write, written to vindicate himself, he'd been accused by uh, the author of Walter Babies, what's he called, uh, John Kingsley. Kingsley. being accused by John Kingsley of vacillating between the two, rather than having a clean conversion. He writes a long explanation. The only way he can vindicate himself is by writing about himself from the start to finish. And it's so self-loving that I find it embarrassing. And that seems to me to be his characteristic. Also, I'm in- irritated by the sophistry with which he tries to reconcile his own views with the church's views. Um, how do you reconcile the, ch- the world was created in 4004 with modern science, which says uh, it was millions of years ago? Ah, uh, it's easy, there's no time in heaven, so both figures fit. I mean, that's just rubbish. And Newman had a great deal of sophistry, which is rubbish, as part of Newman philosophy. I mean, the idea that the Church of England, if he had at one time, was the true apostolic church stretching, stretching back to the foundation, when it didn't exist for the first 1,500 years, is ridiculous. And much of what Newman said was ridiculous. But Manning was a real tough cleric who thought about his people, wanted to do his best for his people, had a social conscience, wanted his Catholic Church to be part of modern, actually, Victorian life. And Manning is a great man and I, again I'm baffled that he doesn't have the primacy, primacy of the Catholic Church for the 19th century. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, he was I also I, captain of Harrow, which helps. <laughs> <laughs> I think the,
0: um, the aim of restoring Manning's reputation is a good one. I feel Uh, I feel professionally insecure at the the downgrading of Newman, particularly in front of the Pro Vice Chancellor of Arts and Humanities. Us theologians are employed for sophistry.
1: Well, I would like to think better of you other than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Things are certainly not black and white, at least. The the, the dominant theme and focus through the book is very much the, the question of political settlement and the place of Catholics politically, culturally. in in these aisles, in the light of the the Reformation. In the light of all of that, and remembering that it was a state visit, not an invitation by the Church in England and Wales, what did you make of the visit of Pope Benedict the 16th in 2010?
1: Well, the honest answer is not enough. Um, Again, name-dropping, Cardinal Nicholls said to me, the one thing he didn't like about the book is the way I'd ignored those visits. And all I can do is apologise for it. Uh, I should have taken them much more seriously than I did. It's an omission of the book. Um, we, we've had it reprinted, so I doubt if I'd be able to do a rewrite, but if I did a rewrite, I would do better by, the, by, by that right. subject. But were
0: you by any chance present when he gave his address in Westminster Hall? No, I wasn't. No. Which, in terms of this narrative, I think is very significant. You, you seem to quite um, appreciate the current hope, but then... Equally, he works against some of the themes you're talking, because he's, he's not binary, he's not black and white. He does want to unsettle certain certainties and allow for the ambigu- ambiguous. Well, it would be
1: a very important thing for me, a poor retired politician, to make judgments about the Pope. Um, but I shall say that I met many people who said the present Pope says the right things. We'd like him to be more active as well as verbal. And I can, re- I can list the things he said which I approve of. Uh, I can't do a similar list of things that uh, is. And returning to the Senate on the Family 19, two years ago, uh, the great issue, which was the liberation item for the inc- occasion, was whether divorced and remarried couples should be allowed to take communion. And they came to a conclusion which was watered down in the report that came out of the synod, you know, but then watered down again in the Pope's response to it. And that is what critics of the Pope, Catholics of the Pope say, is his heart's in the right place, but sometimes he stumbles rather than put it into action. And that's not my opinion, that's theirs, and that's as far as I'm prepared to go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very diplomatic. Um, returning to that central theme about the, 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 place, the place of Catholic distinctiveness, in the wider culture, um, so you know your narrative uh, moves from exclusion and persecution, uh, attempted revolution, through to accommodation, uh, legal entitlement, and forms of assimilation. Um, is that a narrative of gain, or is the loss in that narrative? And and what what? place catholic distinctiveness in today's um society
1: well i i believe i, I want the catholic church to prosper in mean, another complication of my religious point of view is whilst i'm an atheist i believe devoutly in religion i believe the world is better for the existence of religions i'm not one of those atheists like michael foote who would argue if it was on this platform today uh, that religion had been, a, had been a, negative on, had a negative effect on existence, that it was done more evil than good. I believe religion has done immense good. And I want a pluralistic religion to be, the, be, be running in Britain. So I want the Catholic Church to prosper. And it worries me that it's not prospering in quite the way it would hoped to. I mean, it's been given a great boost by the Poles coming in. It was given a great boost by the Irish in 1850. But numbers in English ethnic Catholics are falling off. And that, I think, would be a very bad thing for England if it became genuine minority religion without influence, without power. That's fascinating. You're
0: saying that about the positive role of, uh, of religion in kind of social, cultural, pragmatic
1: terms. Well, it? I mean, I got, often got into trouble with my weekly column in The Guardian, but I got into most trouble when I wrote, we always hear about Christian aid. We never hear about atheist aid. And atheists wrote and said, we're doing it all, but we're doing it quietly. Um, well, the many, 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 many good things that happen because of religion. And the world is a better place for religion. And in that includes include Islam, um, we are a better place for the believers. The fact that I can't manage it myself is neither here nor there. The world is better for belief.
0: What's the single most important thing you think you've learnt from writing this book?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it's part of a continuum, to use a very fashionable but ugly word. Uh, it, it, convinced, it convinced me about me that I could do the research and go to Rome and spend hours there and work on it seriously. Um, it, it simply confirmed my view about religion that it's a thoroughly good thing uh, and the world would be much worse placed without it. But unfortunately, I can't subscribe.
0: I um, want to simply thank you for again accepting this invitation, for engaging the conversation in such a gracious and Stimulating fashion. Uh, at one point, I was amused that you um, described Manning as having manifested, and I quote, "the impertinence of an octogenarian who had outlived his days of sober judgment." <laughs> well, uh, we're delighted to see that you are safe from any such uh, negative judgment being uh, passed in your own regard. Thanks very. Thank you so much, uh, Roy. You've been listening to Professor Paul Murray, Dean and Director of the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in conversation with the Right Honourable, the Lord Hattersley. My name's Ian Britton, Premier's Northern Correspondent. Thank you for listening.